Welcome to Prime Alpha's interview series, insights from industry practitioners discussing their journey and their discoveries. Hello, my name is Amanda Jogia, the CEO of Prime Alpha, an online ecosystem bringing together alternative opportunities and their investors. I'd like to welcome Barbara Bickham, founding and managing director of Trailin VC, a pre-seed fund investing in diverse deep tech founders. She's a serial CTO and has over 35 years of experience in technology and entrepreneurship. Interestingly, she's worked the last five years as a CTO, architecting and designing blockchain, AI, and other emerging tech products. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your career journey and what led you here. So I've had a very eclectic career. I'm actually a computer science major from Berkeley, so that's how I started off. Might as well have a master's degree in software engineering, and I'll get to how I got my mini MBA from the University of Chicago. But I've had a very traditional career, the first kind of half of my career, architecting and design systems. Actually, my very first job, kind of funny, they said, Barb, we would like for you to architect and design something from scratch. And I thought, I said, are you guys sure? (laughs) Because, uh, you know, I just literally got out of school. Like, I'm fresh. They said, oh, no, no, you went to Berkeley. You'll figure it out. So I've been architecting designing systems for many, many years. I managed people, managed P&L, did that for the first kind of half of my career. And then I got an opportunity to start a company. So my first company was called Tech Genai. And we were doing wireless roaming for hospitals. And that patent still hasn't been done. So that's what I was doing. And I was in the wireless space. We're in Hollywood here. And there's a lot of media and entertainment people. And I knew some people that did ringtones and SMS and a lot of this content early. A few of these Hollywood producers came to me and said, hey, can you put that American Idol style voting and polling into my show? And I said, well, yes, I think I can do that. (laughs) So I completely like pivoted my company for real. One of the wireless pioneers in the United States. So if you text help one, two, three, four, five, I participated in that mobile messaging. When you have a digital right, we actually divided the rights digitally. So there was no such thing as a digital right in 2004, 2003, <laughs> didn't exist. Wow. So we're very familiar with that now, right? But that's what one of the things we worked on. And the other thing we worked on, which everyone's kind of understanding now is QR codes. So in 2007, is when we rolled out QR codes onto the phone. I was on the very, very first cusp of QR codes as well. So anything kind of related to mobile messaging, digital rights, kind of on the media and entertainment side, I helped kind of mold and shape here in the United States. So that was Tech Janai. In the intersection of that, I got an opportunity to run an angel group. So somebody came to me and said, hey, you want to run an angel group? I said, well, yeah, sure, why not? I'll give it a try, right? Worst thing can happen is nothing, right? So ran the angel group from 2007 to 2009. You know, we all know what happened in 2008. A few less angels shuttered my group and got an opportunity actually to go on and work with a private merchant bank. So that's kind of how I cut my chops on deal making and business development and funding companies. So did that for about a year, went back to my coding roots in 2011, did that for four years. I was the lone American in the European company. And I actually ended up winning them a Gardner Cool Vendor Award for the REST API I wrote. 
I'm an award-winning REST API writer. Came out of there 2015, became a CTO. And I've kind of been doing that ever since. Now, I started in 2017, 18. I kind of got full on into the blockchain space. I do know a lot of the blockchain pioneers, 2012, 2013. People do ask how I got into the space. So 2015, I tried to get in. After I heard Andreas Antonopoulos, Internet of Money, tried to get in as a developer, actually. And then 2017, I got in kind of as CTO, business strategist, token economics, architecting and designing these AIs, blockchains. Most people wanted AIs and blockchains together. So I've done about seven or eight of those types of projects. I started my fund one in 2019. It was actually, well, back half 2018, early 2019. So it's officially February 2019. It was a QOZ, Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund. We got our first LP prior to coronavirus. And then everybody knows what happened, some kind of global pandemic or something. And so we said, we're either going to deploy this money we have or we can try and keep raising money. And we had gone on some calls. Well, I had gone on a lot of the calls and they're like, we're not deploying any money right now because we're all reconfiguring our portfolio, right? We're making sure all our companies are good. So we deployed that money. We had three investments and one real estate investment out of that fund. And that's kind of how I got to where I am now. I've come out of there and I have Trail and VC. We're doing diverse deep tech founders pre-seed fund. So interesting. There's so many avenues I want to take, but describe that pivotal point in time when you decided to go off on your own and you said, this is what I want to do with Trillin and why, and what's that catalyst? What's that mission, that vision that you're seeing? In 2015, I was driving and I just had an epiphany that there are many gaps in life. I call them gaps. And for me, the initial kind of epiphany was there's this massive technology gap between who's building things, who's getting things funded, and who is not. And so that was the first gap I saw. And I said, wow. And it really kind of upset me. I got a little like flustered by that because I said, if this gap doesn't get solved, the gaps that exist are going to get wider. And so I said, what can I do to fix this? Right. I asked, I didn't know how that was going to come about. Right. I just said, this has to be fixed. And how can I help contribute to fixing it? And so I started, I think then in a little bit when I got into the blockchain space, really looking at and learning about family offices, venture capital, scaling change. How do you become a change agent? How do you become impactful to people like on a different, more scalable level. And so that's when I said, I need to kind of go off on my own and start this fund. I had a couple of fit and starts though. You know, we all have fit and starts, right? I had one person come, Hey bar, we can do this. Didn't work. My second partners worked. Then I had another set of partners that didn't work. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes it's timings. There are various reasons as to why and why it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Partnerships are like a marriage. <laughs> Partnerships are important. Yeah. Who you work with is important and who you do business with is important, right? So in a fund, we're talking about fund one, fund two, fund, you know, multiple, multiple years. Exactly. A hundred percent. So how do you help your clients? If you think about venture capital, venture capital is an ecosystem. 
it's not just one set of people, it's multiple sets of people. So you have your investors, so you help them by trying to increase their increase return to them. They give you money to deploy into companies, you increase return for their money. That's one set of people. You have the companies that you serve. So how do you help companies? Companies need beyond money, they need other resources. So how do you get them customers? This is how I was looking at companies. And then how do you scale them so that they can get a return for your LPs? And then you have vendors and you have other kind of people that work around companies like lawyers and accountants, or maybe they need some C-level people, right? How do you get them type of human resources? That Those are the types of other people that I connect with because it's a whole ecosystem. It's not just like one set of people. Absolutely. It takes a village. It yes. takes a village to make it work. To make it all go, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, and if people want to scale and be large, and if you look at kind of Facebook, what happened to them, right? They got Shell Sonderberg and then they got this one. I get, these companies don't stay like with five people, right? <laughs> they get bigger. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. If you think about it, you have to have the, the thinking also around if you want to be big, you have to think about how you're going to scale your revenues, which then leads to how are you going to scale the rest of your company? your tech team, your C-level, everything, your board, how are you going to scale it all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got to have the right team Mm -hmm. in the right areas. And then also culture. I think culture is extremely important. I was at a company I joined when it was about a hundred people. Five years later, it was about 3000 people. (laughs) It didn't have the culture that it did. It would not have worked as well as it did. 100%. Culture is critical. And culture usually starts when you have the five people, the two people, or the three people, right? I mean, I talk to founders a lot about that because it's important. How are you going to attract someone when you're competing against potentially behemoth companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook, we can name them all. How do you attract that person to go to your startup versus the other people, right? There's a lot of competition for human resources, right? Even developers, even marketing people, even knowledge workers, right? So how do you then attract them? Your culture has got to be superior. Yeah. At some point, you're going to make money, right? So it's not about the money. There's something more than just beyond the money. And that's what's attracting people to do extra, to go the extra mile. If you think about the money equation, right? your equity, you're betting that the equity of what you're doing is going to be greater than the cash you're getting now, right? So it's kind of like a bet on future earnings, for lack of a better word. Yep, that's it. That's important. Very important. So since starting your firm, how have you developed or pivoted your thesis or business and why? And I know you touched on some of the changes that has happened in your firm. I think there's a couple of focuses that have changed. We're doing bigger, diverse founders. Before we were just kind of doing gender balance, C-level. So we were doing equal amount of men and women. I've kind of come off of that. And I think that has given me a wider amount of deal flow. That's number one. And then we're still concentrating on blockchain, AI, XR, which could be metaverse, we could call Web3, whatever they're calling it this week. <laughs> um, IoT, quantum, and AI. So we're still doing those five. 
we still have the sustainability underneath. We're still running them through our very specialized diligence process. So all those things are similar. I just think like having less of the other requirement kind of made the fund a little bit more inclusive, actually. It's less exclusive and more inclusive, right? Because if you're trying to be inclusive, you can't be exclusive and inclusive at the same time. And then also, strategically, there are decisions that we can make because we're not under the IRS. As a QOZ, we're really under very strict rules because they were related to the Department of Treasury and the IRS. Now, this is just a very traditional fund. It's just myself. I mean, I have a great set of venture partners. I have a great set of advisors. I have a great set of people starting to create an LPAC. So that's great. But I think like there's less restrictions. So we're more a traditional fund. So we look like we don't look like everyone else because we're very differentiated. But I mean, as far as our structure, we look like everyone else. So we're not a different structure. I think you're very different than everyone else. Well, thank you. (laughs) So what do you feel that you did right? I'm a constant learner, obviously, right? I tried many different things. Even early in my career, I was at many different types of companies. And many of the companies early in my career got acquired. So I got to see that mechanic. I got to see a lot of different cultures. I got to work for a lot of different management structures, right? They were trying different things. Okay, you have four bosses, you have two bosses. I mean, that was interesting. Well, then which one is my boss? Who's writing my review, right? You got to like figure that out as a worker. Sometimes it's not as clear. <laughs> you know, I had P&L responsibilities, I understand like budget and understand like how did the company really run? I think mm-hmm. all those things were important and they all helped lead me to here. So I'm always learning and I'm always taking classes and I'm always kind of trying to grow and evolve myself. I think it's important to always be learning. I'm less on the coding side now, which is good as well. I don't have the same passion for it. I mean, I could still do it, but just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Oh, totally. Totally. <laughs> There's a lot so, of things I can do. Should I do I mean, it? you know, I, right. So, so that's the difference. That's the difference. I think giving that up, it wasn't hard, but I think like really finally recognizing like it's time for me to lay this down and have that other part of me utilizing my engineering self, but having that other part of me, that finance, that business, serial entrepreneur structure that is still kind of different problem solving. You're just not doing it for product. I think it's this thing where, you know, your greatest value add Mm -hmm. is in your strategy and your thinking and the creativity. You can bring people to the table that can code and build what you've created, but your greatest value is always going to be in that strategy component the to it. Piece. Yeah, the vision piece. And I think that's where it's like, okay, and then you got to let the younger generation come in and do that so that they 100%. can learn and then they can be visionaries. And that's how I think it works. There's a lot of smart young people, right? And so let them learn all the languages and do all the stuff and write all the, you know, let them do it. And then they can ask me like, hey, how does this look? I mean, I can still read it. I, I mean, like, okay, this looks good, right? Or have you thought about this or this, right? And then I think that's also a part of my uniqueness. And the thing I get right is when I see these companies, because I am very technical, I can kind of see like, okay, this kind of works. This kind of doesn't work. This is how it should be. This kind of won't work. Are you guys using the most modern? Like I still am up on 
all the latest techniques because you have to be right yeah because if you're building a company like if a startup comes to you and they're using old methodologies how viable will that be things are accelerating so fast things are going faster and faster as far as technologically being built and things cost less and less to build so you have a lot of competition just for building anything yeah because the barrier to entry is like way low yeah and that's the value of why being the visionary the value mm-hmm. goes up higher because the cost of building is lower. Cost of building is like, it's not quite free, but it, how much does it cost to spin up an AWS instance or a Google instance now or, you know, IBM instance? It's, it's pennies on the dollar now, right? But even when I was so doing cheap. it 10 years ago, it was still expensive. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> well, five was, years ago, it was still expensive, right? Yeah. Someone was saying to me like, oh, if I try to build that 10 years ago, it'd be 10 times as much. I, like, I mean, I saw stuff, yeah, 10 years ago, like I saw certain things, 250 minimum had to get started, right? Totally. So, I mean, it can be very expensive. Yeah. So what are you seeing that's exciting to you right now in the whole blockchain, crypto, AI space? Like what gets you super excited? The thing that gets me excited, I mean, clearly everyone's excited about NFTs, but I'm excited about beyond NFTs. I'm excited when I see like the blockchain and other elements combined. And I think this metaverse, whatever it's going to look like, will be the combination of that. So when you could see the NFT and the AR version of it, or you can see the NFT and it's trying to predict certain things, it needs to get smarter. Because just trading is, in essence, we're in the nascent stage of, okay, I'm going to buy the NFT and I might trade it and it might have a value. Okay. But what happens if it actually got smarter. The NFT got smarter. And you can't make it smarter because there's metadata attached to it. So what can you do then? Most people aren't looking at it that way. They're just looking at it as, okay, here's this digital asset that has a connotation or a value or whatever you want to call it, connected to a piece of art, a JPEG, something, right? But what happens when it evolves? Like, will that be the real metaverse? Right crazy i don't know we'll see you know the thing is is like it's so hard to get your mind around all these concepts (laughs) it sounds like it's hard but really they're all going to start interconnecting this is the thing that's going to start happening it seems like they're each individualized but if you look at what facebook did they actually i mean it is kind of a metaverse they actually did kind of introduce online offline in combination Because you could be in the virtual world completely. You could be in the physical world interacting with the virtual world. So that's kind of the AR version. Or you could be completely in the physical world. So the question becomes, how are you going to monetize that? Like, that's kind of where a blockchain can go. And then what are they going to do with all that data? That's actually the more scarier question. Like, you're going to be generating a lot of data. How do you protect yourself now in this other world or this other because we have enough hard time protecting our data in the physical world right how you gonna do it in a completely virtualized world where you're coming in and out yeah so fascinating so barbara i'm gonna ask you what do you think is your superpower and why i know i am the fire jumper because i get phone calls where it's like hey barb my hair is on fire can you put it out with something, right? It could be flour. It could be the fire extinguisher. It could be water. It could be, depending on the level of problem, hopefully it's not a nuclear bomb level problem, 
like because I have ratings of problems, but that's how I look at myself. Like I'll come in and help kind of clean up the issue. And I think that's powerful because everybody can't just come in and clean it up. And hopefully it doesn't get to the mess stage, but sometimes it does. So when you want somebody to come in and clean it up, sometimes it gets to be a mess. If you think about what happened with the global pandemic, right? It was a lot of things that had to happen because companies were really struggling. Yeah. And no one knew what, what was going to be happening. No one knew. Like, I didn't know. No one knew. So we kind of know now, right? But we didn't know before. So how do you handle that? You almost have to have like a switch and go, okay, now everyone's called all the portfolio companies. I called, like I had some personal ones I was working with. I'm like, is everyone okay? Yes, yes. This one, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Right. And then the ones that you had to have more help with them. Right. Because we had some in the travel space. Travel went to pretty much zero overnight, right? It went from like, we're doing this to nothing. How do you pivot those companies? This is where my kind of experience of having moved a company from kind of like, I'm doing X to completely something different. It was, you know, had value, right? Everybody can't say that. Yeah. That's amazing, by the way. It's survival. Like, how do you survive and make it through and, it's and almost, problem solving? Yeah. It's almost like it's that troubleshooting, right? It's like, I don't know, maybe it's that kernel level program, right? You couldn't have the kernel crash. You couldn't have these things happen. You had to be so careful about these companies and who really warranted serious attention versus who did not. Mm-hmm. Right? right. It's triage, right? a little bit of triage. Right. You have right? to triage as well because everybody, one of my people was like, oh, I got money for the, I'm here. I'm, I'm doing X. I'm, I got money to go from here. I'm like, okay, fine. Right. That was a 15 minute call. Right. Others more. Right. So you kind of have to understand where they are, where the companies are, kind of where they are in their funding cycles. And then it's interesting because I talked to some people and they said, oh, this is just like 2008. I said, no, I I was in 2008. No, there was no global pandemic in 2008. No, that wasn't happening. So, right. So it's like (laughs) the comparison was not equal, right? The whole world was not closed in 2008, right? I mean, that was not happening. It was kind of US centric in 2008. This is unheard of in epic proportions. Correct. So like to have that comparison, I was like, nope, nope, this is not the same. So really, it's interesting too. like some of the perspectives I ran into because I'm like, nope, not the same. So you also have to like ferret that out. Because while you're trying to also help your companies, some people, sometimes I'm this as well, they kind of didn't quite catch what was happening. No, this is, this is like wholly different, right? No, this is. This I said is, the whole world is shut down. I said all my friends here, 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 and here. And people were like, "How you got all these friends?" I said, "I've been kind of everywhere, right?" And we were talking about it, right? And then I was talking to them, and I'm like, "Well, what's happening here? What's happening here?" So we just started finding out. Yeah, I think the way we work has changed. Oh, I think absolutely. people have completely reevaluated their lives during this time. One hundred percent. It's literally touched every fabric of everyone's life, and people are doing things differently. It's just everything. I mean, exactly. young people want to stay virtual. What am I doing this for? (laughs) Yeah, I think there were some seismic shifts in many ways. Like you said, is this really a good career for me? I think people thought, am I happy doing what I'm doing? This remote thing, now that I've kind of figured it out and the kids are here, not too bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. Do I really need to go back in the office? Really? Like now that I've figured it out, you guys want me to come back? And then some people may not have figured it out and they may miss the socialization of office, right? So maybe they'll go back to the office. 
Exactly. Uh, I was fully virtualized. So I have been virtualized since 2000. So mm-hmm. I have been you know, going around since 2000. So I was quite used to being remote, but most people were not. So I was doing some speaking on, here's how you protect yourself if you're going to be remote, because there were some things you really have to do to set that up. It's not like just let's all go remote, right? Did you have VPNs? Did you have other things? What happens when people leave? How do you create a culture online, right? So we did do a little bit of that. But work has forever changed because I think if you figured it out for yourself that you could be remote and if you have kids, oh, kids can be remote and okay, we got used to these certain things. I think it's hard. It's hard to go back. It's hard to go back into like a little cube box or or wherever you were, right? Yeah, I think everyone's world has closed in itself, but then it's also opened it up. I think what you're trying to say, Amanda, is like we see each other for like who we are, which is really just human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes there's dogs barking in the background because they have dogs. Sometimes the kid wants to run up and say hi to everybody. Okay, hi, right? There's no shame in any of that. That's just showing that Mm -hmm. you're a person just like anyone else, right? So I actually think it's been great. And people are embarrassed by that. And it's like, why would you be embarrassed? Because you're like a normal person, right? Yeah. I feel like actually I got to know my clients more on a personal level at this time than I ever did before. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you for coming on. Would love to have you back on again. Well, anytime. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Prime Alpha's Visionaries and Innovators podcasts. As always, you can head over to primealpha.com to sign up to our email list, as well as check out our other podcasts. See you next time.